Hello, 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 and welcome once again to Out of the Tower, where we find philosophy and tech neck and neck. And my friends, we have a very, very special guest with us today. We have the one and only, the venerable Timmy O'Neill. He is a professional rock climber, public speaker, and co-founder of Paradox Sports, an organization which creates climbing opportunities for the disabled and impaired across the nation. And from um, Greenland to Patagonia, he has traversed the most perilous ranges the world has to offer. And from his own experiences with his brother, he focuses on cultivating experiences in climbing for a general population, as well as applying the experiences of being disabled to sports to overcome such challenges. So, uh, Mr. O'Neill, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Mr. O'Mara. And let's just start by calling each other. Uh, you can call me Timmy. I'll call you Peter. Is that cool? Of course. That is do- that's totally cool <laughs> by me. So, I just want, so uh, Timmy, I just want to start off uh, very basically, if that's all right with you. I understand that part of your, and you can correct me on a bit of the timeline here, but I understand a lot of the motivation with Paradox Sports, before we get into the real nitty gritty of that, is your own experiences with your brother and climbing. Could you uh, describe a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I found climbing when I was 19 years old. My brother, Sean, and I, we have five other siblings, Susan, Sean, Kimberly, Kevin, Timmy, Tommy, Billy. So we were raised in this anomalous family in Philadelphia where we went whitewater kayaking. And so we were introduced to risk early on in our lives. I found climbing when I was 19. And a couple years later, I was in Southern California in Joshua Tree National Park climbing. And I got the news that my brother, Sean, had been paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, when we were kayaking, we, you know, bridges go over rivers. And as a family, we would all hold hands and jump off these lower bridges. And, and then that led way to higher and higher bridges. And so it was not uncommon for us to see a bridge and want to jump off um, for that sort of adrenaline rush and that risk. And my brother had jumped off a bridge um, into the Mississippi River Um, from a high distance, about 100 feet. And he hit the water in such a way that broke his spine at the T12, right where his uh, thoracic spine meets his lumbar, right around his belly button. So after his injury, um, he became a climber. So through that crisis of becoming paraplegic, he and I formed a partnership to create the opportunity for him to become a climber. And I understand that uh, such time, uh, after some time went by, you uh, guys conquered, I believe the name of the mountain was um, El Capitan in uh, Yosemite National Park? Exactly. Yeah. We started early um, just by trying to do a smaller peak called Devil's Tower, Ah. which if you've seen Close Encounters of of the Third Kind, I think it's a movie from the 80s, in fact, um, it's it's a, a, a large rock formation in Wyoming. And in fact, it's in the nation's first national monument. We went there probably about a year or so after his injury and we did an ascent and it was the first paraplegic ascent of Devil's Tower. And that led way to uh, Utah, to the wilderness there and climbing Castleton Tower and another really huge formation called the Tombstone. And that eventually brought us years later to one of the world's most recognized and biggest granite monoliths, El Capitan, in the heart of Yosemite National Park. And he wound up doing about 3,000 pull-ups up the face over the course of a seven-day ascent. Oh, wow. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I mean, talk about rising up. If you'll allow me to uh, phrase it in those terms, just, just absolute, just, 
W- words are failing me. Words are failing me. And and it was Peter. You're accurate to say that it was a rising up for for not only him and that classic sense of of rising from the ashes of perhaps his paralysis, um, and then understanding that he could leave his wheelchair behind as well, because that was his first time in many years uh, leaving the wheelchair behind for day after day after day, and on a big wall like that there's a, a sense of disability with all of us on the wall because we're connected via ropes and we can only go so far and we have to use this special adaptation for all of us to go up the wall. So it was all of us rising together. I mean, I believe the leaving of the wheelchair in that respect, it became truly, uh, perhaps for him, perhaps for, perhaps for both of you, just truly emblematic of that you know, desire to move forward, not not just to rise up, but just make that a general routine in one's daily life and attitude, perhaps. Well, what's interesting, you bring up that general necessity. Every day you're faced with this challenge, right? So it, it, right. It, you right. either have to move forward or you get stuck in the past, right? Or stuck in perhaps this sense of bitterness, um, so you're forced to overcome and adapt. And what's interesting about you know starting Paradox Sports um, was that my brother's ascent of El Cap with me, and we would go on to do multiple ascents of El Capitan, and he would go on to actually generate systems of ascent that allowed him to be the first one up the rock. Well, through through doing those ascents, other people became aware of that, and they wanted to both do it themselves as a paraplegic or somebody using a wheelchair, or they wanted to help somebody that they knew. So basically, it allowed us to take something that was very personal for us and, and turn it into more of a communal offering, right? But much like sort of the the name of your podcast, Out of the Ivory Tower, right? Like we were talking about this earlier, but Out of the Tower where, you know, we were talking about the ascent being halfway, that when my brother Sean and I got to the top of El Capitan, we had accomplished this goal that was really audacious. But the other part of that ascent is down climbing, is coming back to the ground. And for us, it was sharing the information that we learned, not only the skill sets and the equipment, but the state of mind and what you need to prepare yourself for intellectually and spiritually to overcome something like this. Absolutely. And I believe, uh, as uh, we mentioned earlier, it was the idea of ascending that tower, getting to sort of that privileged space of enlightenment and knowledge, but not losing sight of the ground at the same time, being able to find your way back to the ground to impart it onto others. Right. Or else you're going to be stuck at the summit forever. Absolutely. I mean, it gets pretty long way up there. Yeah. Just talk to those hermits, dude. They're starved. Oh, yes. Um, And so how how did that sort of, um, and again, you can definitely correct me in terms of the timeline here, but how did that really lead to the creation of Paradox Sports? What happened was a guy named DJ Skelton, who was a captain in the U.S. Army, got in touch with me because I had been speaking publicly about the ascents with my brother. I had been working with other high-level athletes, uh, people who had both been injured 
um, like Aaron Ralston, who had lost his arm oh, famously yes. in Blue John Canyon. Uh, another friend of mine, Warren McDonald, who had lost both of his legs very high above the knee. His residual limbs are very short, what remains. We climbed El Capitan. So I wound up being sort of a go-to person for individuals who wanted to climb or wanted to practice overcoming what their disability may be um, as it applies to climbing. So I got this call one day from, uh, you know, a classic army guy, DJ Skelton. And he's like, Mr. O'Neill, this is captain, you know, DJ Skelton with the U S army. And he himself had been injured in the second Fallujah war. He lost his eye, one of his eyes, um, the palate of his mouth. He had uh, paralysis in an arm and a leg, and this is now permanent for him. So he was in the Walter Reed, hospital as a climber before his injury and then as a climber after and he's like how do i do this how do i figure this out and of course necessity is the mother of invention and where there's a will there's going to be a way so i went over to dc and we did a climbing clinic with several of these severely wounded polytraumatic individuals you know eyes legs paralysis you name it and that night we were um, having dinner and we talked about the formation of a, a nonprofit that could spread this information and share this body of knowledge with those who needed it so we uh, within a year from that date we had formed paradox sports remarkable and, and this was you said he was wounded in was the you said the first or second of fallujah war it was the second Fallujah war in Iraq, yeah. And mm -hmm. in terms of that uh, uh, that dinner, yeah. what what would you say? Uh, and this is this is perhaps perhaps a uh, a too specific question, but just during that general conversation of working with this uh, clinic and just trying to figure out how we could really spread all the good that we were you were doing uh, during that time. What do you think? Just at least in terms of attitude, at least in terms of ideology, was the main motivating force behind that? I mean, for, for me personally, or for us as a group, um, either one. I mean, I mean, whichever you think was just the overall overarching push that was going to say, "Yes, we're going to do this. We're going to get out there and show that this can be done." I think it's a few things. Um, one of them is is sharing kindness, right? Just being kind to those around you, and by kindness, I mean like that sense of empathy that you go and recognize somebody's plight or somebody's suffering and then you work to relieve it. Right. And, and I think that that's the, that creates meaning in, in our lives that that created meaning in our lives. And then there was that sense of gratitude that not only that, that, okay, me as Timmy O'Neill, I may not be paralyzed. So I'm grateful for that, but also I'm grateful that my brother is alive right? And I'm grateful that DJ Skelton still has one eye, right? I'm grateful for what remains, uh, not only you know, bitter about what is missing, right? And so I think what really was the overriding factor in doing this is there was need for it. That, that again and again, people were getting in touch with me. And then when I met DJ, I met somebody who was incredibly capable in, in synthesizing what it was we needed to do and creating the nonprofit around it, right? Um, so he was uh, the executive director for a couple of years. A guy named Malcolm Daly was the executive director for a couple of years. And then I actually ran the organization for a few years as well. Ah, I see. Thank you for the clarification. So dur so during these these uh, sort of uh, early years, what sort of pushback, if any, did you folks encounter during the creation of Paradox Sports? 
I mean, I think the the, the main pushback is uh, is one of of people's ability to imagine it, right? Like imagination. It would be people saying, well, "I didn't think that that was possible." So if we don't think it's possible, then it doesn't happen. If we can't see it, then it doesn't exist. And and, and interestingly enough, last November, so over a year ago. November of 2019, I was in Nepal climbing a, a beautiful peak called Ama Dablam. It's considered to be the world's most beautiful peak uh, with the world's most beautiful view. It's in the Khumbu region in, in Nepal, and it sits adjacent to many other 8,000 meter peaks, one of them being the highest, Everest. And my point in bringing this story up is, is I was in this incredibly beautiful area with this famous climber named Eric Weinmayer, who's blind. He can't see anything. He's 100% no light perception. And it made me realize that Eric is a visionary for many reasons. And it helped me to understand and define visionary as not a person that sees it, but a person that imagines it and then makes it so, right? So I think with Paradox Sports, one of the main limiting factors was others' ability to see the possibility of someone whose legs don't work climbing El Cap, someone who has no eyes climbing Mount Everest, which Eric has done, uh, somebody with uh, without arms actually climbing, right? Um, and then I think the, the the other factors that that could limit something like paradox sports are the connection to one another. So, meaning that I think oftentimes people are operating in a silo or they're operating sort of in a vacuum. Like they don't know that other people are creating and, and providing these, uh, ex, you know, these sort of adventures or expeditions or outings, right. Or programs as, as we eventually turn them into. So I think it's, it's imagination to, to see it. And then it's the connection to it, which is why we created Paradox Sports sort of as a clearinghouse to get the word out there and to create this national program around overcoming adversity. And I think it's especially um, pertinent uh, for the for our purposes here that you mentioned that the real difficulty that when it comes to being a visionary, it's not about whether or not you can see it, it's whether or not you can imagine it, and then being able to get others to imagine it as well. You encounter, at least in my personal experiences, at the risk of being a tad too anecdotal, um, some difficulties with that in philosophy because when you uh, do uh, apply yourself to philosophy, and it is something, it is a, it is a skill set that you want to make use of, whether or not you have aspirations in academia or anything else. Uh, philosophy does equip you in many different ways to approach nearly any kind of problem that manifests itself in critical thinking, being able to very, very uh, finely read in between the lines, as met, uh, among many others. But the difficulty is, uh, especially um, I mentioned for many other young professionals out there, is getting others to see that so you can definitely imagine it and you've seen it also in your own mind's eye, so to speak. But at the same time, getting others to imagine that, trying to take that chance and embrace the idea of what if that is something that could actually be done. And then on the off chance that you do get that chance and then you actually get to practically implement it and show how 
how that success can manifest itself. So people then say, oh, here is a practical way that I can see all of those skills manifesting. But the difficulty is getting others to even imagine so that that chance can even be uh, presented to you. So I definitely understand where you're coming from. And I do think that is a, that is a huge, um, for, for want of a better descriptor, <laughs> roadblock, uh, not just uh, for uh, philosophy or, or even climbing, I imagine, but just m- many other different paths and choices, uh, career choices that aren't the most immediately uh, tangible. Well, you I mean, you use the word barrier, right? So Eric Weinmayer, um, who I mentioned earlier, he started with several others, this organization called No Barriers. And their tagline I love, and it's what's within you is stronger than what's in your way, right? So your ability to believe, your ability to apply, et cetera, can overcome those barriers and will overcome those barriers, especially not only with your own persistence personally, but with the association or help of a community, which is what Paradox Sports is about. And as far as bringing up the the concept of you know, having other people join or having other people believe or see what it is you're doing. In the medical field, they have this thing, you know, watch, do, teach, right? Or in the case of watch, we could say think. So think, do, teach. So imagine it, then do it, and then teach others to do it, right? And that will give you mastery with it. So if you make it personal, for Sean and I, we were like, what if we were to climb? El Capitan. What does that look like? In fact, I gave him a certificate that was good for one ascent of El Capitan at Christmas one year, soon after his paralysis. And I'm like, dude, redeem this for a climb of El Cap, because already it had been done by a paraplegic named Mark Wellman. Him and another guy named Mark Corbett did El Cap. I think it was like a 12-day ascent. It was epic. Mark, of course, was the first one, so he had to come up with everything. So we watched that. Then we did it ourselves, and then we taught people to do it. Again, having us have the ability to to learn it very well, and then also create an organization that can push it out there to everyone that needs it. It, uh, Just a point of clarification, if you don't mind me asking, when uh, you were just just because I'm just curious, uh, when you say uh, that you're teaching others to do it, is that? Insofar as if climbing really is a passion of theirs, it's a true uh, pursuit yeah. of theirs, uh, being, teaching them to do it, is that something that they're able to pursue uh, again in the future, even without a certain assistance, uh, just out of curiosity? Yeah. I mean, as, as far as when you teach somebody, moving it back to the concept of gaining personal mastery is when you watch it and you personally do it then you teach it, you have to understand it so well that you can deliver the specifics, the regimen, the routine. You have to have such good control and understanding of it that you can educate somebody. And as far as the people that we are providing the education to, the skills, the equipment, it is about an ongoing relationship. Like they come back into the program or they st- or it's the potential of starting programs where they live. So when I was executive director of Paradox Sports, uh, with, the ho- with the help excuse me, of, of many others, we produced a manual on how to adaptive climb. And the, the reason we made that manual, you know, it's like a 200-page manual, this how-to was not only so people could understand how to do it, but how to create clubs and how to create community at their potential climbing wall or university or in their county or at their climbing area. So it's about the creation of 
an understanding of the specifics, but also about creating community of family, a place where people can gather again and again. And so you have these uh, adaptive climbing clubs that may meet once a month, they may meet once every two weeks. Um, they take it from inside the climbing gym and take it outside to the wilderness. So yeah, it, it's an ongoing relationship. And it must be a huge boon um, and just a general booster to confidence to, you know, you do have that community, but also to be able to uh, pursue what one loves, such as climbing, and to do so on your own, even with a disability, I imagine, uh, provides a huge sense of autonomy and um, confidence uh, to these individuals. Yeah, you have a greater sense of agency. I can move. I can overcome. Um, and then you also have the ability to apply those lessons to every part of your life, right? I mean, there's a reason why mountain climbing and teamwork, you know, via that mountain climbing is often used in, in the business sense as a metaphor, because you have to work in synergy, you have to have this common goal, you have to understand the roles of the team to be able to utilize those the best, etc. So those lessons that an individual learns uh, when climbing whether it's adaptive climbing or not, you apply those to the other areas of your life, to the relationships that you build with other people, but also your personal relationship to risk, to problem solving, to dealing with discomfort for even electing discomfort, et cetera. And I would just add on to that real quickly. I do uh, want to uh, congratulate. It's not the right word. I don't know what I'm saying. I would want to emphasize, as you are bringing up, that uh, just having that sense of community is very important, not just for being able to connect with others who have a similar pursuit and a similar uh, passion, but also those who are at least to a certain extent of a similar mindset because something that I observe uh, within philosophy, at, le at least at the post-bachelor level, is there's a certain perilousness to it insofar as Again, depending on what it is you want to do with that, what it is you want to make with that, that's going to that's going to change things tremendously. That must be accepted. But when you have a particular uh, path um, and a way of looking at the world, just because you know that's how you were trained, so to speak, it can be very isolating when you want to try and, as we said before, you know, make others imagine, make others have that, but. Even when that's a difficulty, sometimes you don't even feel like you have much of a community to fall back onto. When you don't, are, when you aren't able to find others with a similar connection who have had a similar kind of training, who are who are built to look at the world in a certain way, that can be very, very isolating. So um, I imagine it's a bit of a mood point to say, you know, it would go with anything. But I think to be able to have that sense of community, even as you're training these individuals to uh, pursue it, um, something that they can do on their own time. Time of their own accord, uh, I think is a tremendous um, sort of a one-two punch, if you will, <laughs> that I think is imperative. And it's interesting, Peter, because that sense of community, uh, you know, people often talk about, look, I don't want to be recognized as a blind climber, or I don't want to be that, you know, the climber who's known with the amputation or the, or the, the wheelchair climber. What they want or what we're all looking for is to be a climber. Right. So to to not necessarily be looking to stand out, but to be looking to be able to be pulled in. Right. And it, it's interesting, you know, this is a common conversation we have in the adaptive world around disability as people often hearing you're such an inspiration. Right. 
and, and that sort of, you know, they call it inspiration porn, where people are looking at, you know, somebody who's overcoming something like my brother or all the people that we've mentioned. And what they're looking for is, look, I just want to be normal. I, I don't want to necessarily be an inspiration to you. I understand that I am. And the reason of this is because it's exceptional what they're dealing with and how they're overcoming it, but it, they don't have a choice anymore. So it's interesting. Like I have a friend named Quinn Brett. She became paralyzed in 2017 in a fall on El Capitan, the same injury where my brother is right about at her waist. And we were talking about, can you be 50% of a former self, but become a hundred percent of who you are now? Right? So there's almost a need to move on past the injury, right? And to be able to go into who am I currently as a person? What, what does my current 100% look like? So if you have people constantly saying, you're such an inspiration because your leg is missing or because your sight is missing or because you're, you're not able to, to walk, it's a reminder and almost like an asterisk that you have to place beside not only your accomplishments, but your life. Oh, yes. Yes, and I, I I can definitely identify the many subtle ways that can manifest that aren't always as easy to identify, but they can be debilitating nonetheless. And I think that that, that very sharp, uh, blunt way of putting it, inspiration porn. I think that's a very apt term for it. Well, but but then the, but then there's also the truth that it is incredibly inspirational when my brother does thousands of pull ups up a face using, of course, only his arms because his legs are withered. And he literally crawls to the base and crawls down from the summit. Now that is his new normal, but for those who aren't dealing with his issues, it is abnormal and it can be inspiring. So there's a line where if, if I'm going to be inspirational to you, well then do something with it. Don't just give me some hallmark sentiment and, cl and claim that it's powerful. Yes. It, it, it doesn't matter if it's powerful if you don't use it. So a caveat could be, okay, you can call me inspirational, but only if you pledge to actually do something with the inspiration and make that positive and hopefully enduring change in your life as a result of witnessing it. Absolutely. Because otherwise, if we just go with this Hallmark uh, inspiration, um, not only does it become like lip service at a certain point, but it becomes almost kind of dehumanizing almost in that in that respect because you do have someone who's trying to overcome this challenge and in many cases as from what i'm hearing they they have but if they, but when you have other individuals looking in and their inspiration only extends insofar as the praise that they're he, uh, heaping onto um the individual who's overcome so much then that might seem from their perspective that they're only focusing on the fact that Oh, they, they, they are disabled, but they did this. Not, not what they should be doing of, oh, they were disabled, but they were able to overcome it and do all this. Now I'm going to overcome the challenges that I might be facing in my personal life and do all this as they would have. There's, right, an, in, exactly. there's an inadvertent fixation on just the mere fact of the accomplishment rather than the practical nitty gritty. Now I think that's a very, very key distinction to make in a um, line of work such as this. Agreed. Absolutely. 
Um, so moving on a little bit, um, uh, you may know that uh, one of the our very previous guests um, that we had on the show here, I shouldn't say very previous, um, the last guest that we had on the show here, uh, Peter Ferris, the uh, former chief evangelist of uh, Equinix, uh, uh, he was uh, speaking a great deal about all the uh, changes in attitude and culture that he saw uh, transforming at company when uh, you stepped in and uh, provided, as I understand it, a lot of these opportunities and just a chance to change one's perspective perspective of. If possible, could you expand a little bit more on that, please? Well, I I first spoke with Equinix and met Pete Ferris um, now over 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, classic, I was hired to come and speak at their sales meeting and provide my talk around what I do, much about what we're talking about today, right? And so it, it was successful. The executive team really enjoyed my point of view, it was totally unusual from what they were used to. And they invited me to take part in their executive meetups so that I would come out and work with the whole sea level suite. And we would go hiking, we would go climbing, and then we would sit around and talk basically, much like we're doing right now. Talk about what perspective changes came in, what we learned, what we liked, disliked, etc. And then Pete and I wound up forming a friendship and actually hiking and doing some adventures ourselves. We've been down the Grand Canyon together along with the former chief of staff and the chief operations officer. So it was like fun hanging out, right? And giving these guys a wild side. But simultaneously, as they were getting sort of rewild, I was becoming um, not more corporate, but, but more uh, controlled in a way. Basically, it was helping me understand that I could offer and create a platform. So they were helping me synthesize these ideas into a, sort of a, a, um, like an educational platform, basically. And so Pete and I decided, well, we would approach the CEO and Steve Smith and say, look, we want to do these walk in the woods. We want to take people out of uh, typically a very stressful scenario, their jobs, doing this data storage center, basically, you know, housing the internet and all of its information. And people that are working, you know, beyond nine to five, they're working like six to 10, you know, they're, they're so busy and so removed from what they want to be doing. You know, now it's important to earn a living and put food on the table and and pay your bills and all that. But perhaps it's also very important to take care of oneself and to take a moment to pull back from, you know, an overly stimulated, overly anxious world that we've created. So the, the short of it is we took 15 people per trip, brought them on a camping journey where we hiked and walked and then would sit around the fire and talk about things that night. And it sounds very simple, but it was also very powerful. And the stories that I heard from uh, Mr. Ferris himself definitely um, can corroborate that tenfold. Absolutely. In in terms of working with uh, uh, Equinix um, or o- other similar companies um, during your work as a public speaker, what do you find, um, if there's any sort of pattern, uh, some of the more bigger challenges to overcome within a uh, company to, re- to really in sort of incite that change? Well, it's interesting, like, uh, like you mentioned lip service, right? And I think that a lot of times we can recognize a change we want to make. We could talk about that change, which is really important. But unless you activate the change, 
then nothing actually changes, right? So I think that you have, you know, this body in motion tending to stay in motion, which is, yeah, we really care about our employees' health, but we also really care about you hitting the number and the bottom line and making sure that our clients have complete contact and, you know, uh, ability to have everything that they need. So I think that what we find is, yeah, we can make these changes and the lucky people, it's a little more sticky and they can sort of hold the line that, that they want to change. Um, but for a lot of people, it's a momentary change before they slip back into a former pattern. Oh, yes. The way that it was before. And what do you find, to, if, if I might just bring up an immediate follow-up to that, what do you find are the best strategies, if any, um, it could be a bit of a crapshoot at times, I imagine, um, are the best strategies for countering those momentary changes? Because I think those can be the most insidious. Well, well, you have to apply yourself again. You have to go outside. So what we find is we do we do this trip with these individuals. By the end of these three days together, there are tears and laughter and a deep, poignant feeling of of what is missing so that they can go and find it or develop that or create that space to nourish that seed of change, to grow it until it eventually bears fruit, right? So that requires ongoing maintenance. You know, the farmer's job isn't over when you drop the seed in the ground. It's only just begun, right? So you have to tend it. You have to weed it. You have to nourish it. You have to provide fertilizers, water, etc. You have to prevent uh, the bugs and the birds from wreaking havoc. Uh, you need to, you know, harvest, bring to market, etc. You know, so it's not a one and done. It's a one and begun. That, that's a great way of turning that that phrase on its head. I need to start using that myself, actually. One and begun. I need to write that down. Mm -hmm. I'm writing it down right now. We just made that up, Peter. Thanks, dude. Oh, well, you get thank you. I'm more than happy that. to help. Um, <laughs> so I would say moving forward uh, during your work as both a, a public speaker and professional athlete, what do you see the biggest challenges uh, for growing the, or spreading the meshes, I should say, of paradox sports and just the, com the, the community attempting uh, these things at large, not just really at the corporate level, but just a broader cultural uh, tier, I would say, to sort of push back against the cynicism of uh, sort of the passive cynicism of the world that's, that's, that just says, hey, let's, it, you're this way, it's going to be hard, but here's what you've got, you know, take it and run with it. You know, there, there's, there's nothing to imagine, let's, you know, let's just see, all we're going to do is see, there's nothing here to imagine. What do you see? <laughs> I, of phrasing there as the best ways to counteract those moving forward. Well, I think like, what are the catalysts of change? What, what are the things that spur and urge us to difference? Right? So for example, when a dog growls, we know that a bite could be imminent, right? When we see if you know what poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, these these plants that have an oil on them that can cause an allergic reaction to your skin. Um, when you see those plants, you avoid them. When you see a wasp 
buzzing around you and you see that it has the stinger on the back, you avoid that wasp. You avoid that noxious plant. You avoid that growling dog, right? So, So what I'm getting at is there are things that we know we need to not do. And there are things we know we need to avoid, right? We'll call that the to don't list, right? So if you have a to don't list, you also have a to do list, right? So what I'm getting at is what are the impet- what's the impetus in your life to make change? If if you don't have one or feel one, then you're not going to make change, right? If there's not a growl, if there's not a buzz, if there's if there's not this warning for you, and oftentimes we have to be propelled by a warning. So can we have an internal one? right? That says, Hey, I want to make this change in my life. Simple one. I want to carve a little bit more time in my life. You know, people always say if there were one extra hour in the day, well, there isn't, you actually have to fabricate that extra hour in the day. So I think as far as how do I envision or, or how do I see the problem being solved of people being perhaps too stressed out or, or unhealthy or too wrapped up in the sort of head games that we can play is carving a little bit more time to be outside, to take a walk, even though that sounds so simple, literally to take a walk outside around the block of your house. Now with the pandemic, of course, it's become twofold. One, more difficult to travel away, but two, we're more home and you know sheltering in place so that we have simultaneously a feeling of separation, but then also a feeling of uh, being able to have this time to move around, right? Like we may not be able to gather together, but we could still get outside um, and and do these walks and do the, you know, have a moment with a family member or a dear friend, you know, having that separation, of course, and wearing a mask, of course, and being outside. But, but I think it's really comes down to personal choice and what's, what's, informing and and I, and I do choice. think you also hit the nail on the head when you mentioned a warning because I do think in many cases as morbid as that might sound to some individuals I think it's a very apt way of describing how what they do fundamentally need to incite that change even if such um, diction is not the most uh, particularly inspiring but I do think it's crucial that it be said nonetheless the growl, the growl. Like, where's Absolutely. that growl coming from? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I would like to uh, sort of start to wrap things up here. Um, so uh, what I wanted to know, just building off of what okay. you did mention just now uh, in regards to the uh, pandemic as we move away from this year, uh, thank goodness, <laughs> um, do you – uh, see any particular changes, whether that's manifesting within your own clientele, within your organization, or even just the uh, nation at large, a, a general trend o- away from, I think, some of the uh, lays, the passive cynicism that we've been talking about, that there's been sort of this real rude awakening, this wake-up call, this growl, as you say, um, to incite that change. Have you been observing it anywhere, personally? Well, I mean, it's interesting, you know, it seems like we have, we're a consumer society, right? Capitalism, right? So 
you know, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, you know, has increased the value of, of his company and himself by, by just astronomical numbers because people need to purchase things, of course, and, and they come to the home. And my point in bringing this up is that that's an external fix. Now, of course, you, you do need some things, right? You need food, you need shelter, you need clothing. Um, but at a certain point, we keep needing external things. Um, so I think what the pandemic has helped for a lot of us is realize that we need a lot less than we thought to be happy, a lot less than we thought to be healthy. Like all this travel that everybody was running around like crazy doing and it stopped, but the world keeps moving, right? In fact, maybe we're even healthier as a result for that. Um, so I feel that for me, it's, it's an understanding that less is more in this case. Um, that people have been able to take time that they didn't have before and carve it to do creative things, whether it's learning a musical instrument or writing or reading or cooking or taking up a new sport or getting into the outdoors more. In, in 2008, there was the Great Recession, and that's when they invented the staycation this concept of just staying close to home or staying literally at home and using your time for self-advocacy and self-nurturing and self-nourishing. So I think with this global pandemic, it is that exponentially compounded that there's even a greater sense of the need for self-care. And if this growl of that COVID-19, of this sort of existential menace, um, is being heard, hopefully it's being listened to and acted upon in a way that has us caring not only for ourselves and concentrically for those who are near us and then further out, but for the entire global community. I love you, Peter, and I love everybody listening. And I'm hoping for everyone to have as much peace, health, and joy in their lives as they can possibly create. Here, here, A long overdue growl, but a growl nonetheless, it would seem. <laughs> well, well, Timmy, I want to thank you so, so much for your time today on the podcast. It's been a wonderful, absolute treat to have you on here. My pleasure, Peter. Out of the tower and into the wilderness we go, my friend. And I look forward to uh, hearing from you and hopefully seeing you on the trail or even on the summit someday, my friend. Oh, you can expect me to be there. I've got a few places on my list. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to head back into the tower once again, but I will see you once I emerge again. Have a great day and bye-bye. Bye. -bye.